This is a Spirit of Truth Radio Network original program. John Milton wrote, The mind is its own place, and in itself can make a heaven of hell. My guest today has helped so many people living in a hell of isolation, worthlessness, and fear. Helping to change those paradigms, those that have experienced the worst of human treatment by others. Joining me along the way to discuss how beliefs are formed and changed is clinical social worker David Lawrence Holly. David, welcome. Thank you, Dave. I th- Dave, I think I think we got to have a full disclosure. You and I met. Uh, I don't know. It's got to be at least eight years ago, eight nine years ago now, and we became fast friends, and we became the bestest of friends. Um, Absolutely. Really quickly, and uh, we've worked on a number of projects together. We've um, We've been on a number of retreats together, and that's uh, it's it's always been a blessing to be with you, Dave. Recently, I interviewed Jim Wahlberg, and I thought about you when I when I was editing the, the show, and there was a couple of lines that really jumped out at me. One in the beginning was he was told at a young age that God was going to get him, okay, and then later on when he met Mother Teresa, he was in a group of people, but he was he felt like she was talking to him. And in that moment, when she said that you're more than your prison number, you're, you're more than the circumstances that got you here, you're a child of God. I thought about you because you, you know the inner workings of how those, those beliefs were formed, both at a young age and then how they, they were transformed by that one moment of, of humility. I, I think the at least in my career as a, as a clinical social worker. And just to, to kind of frame this, most of my career I've worked with um, children who've been physically abused, sexually abused, um, victims of domestic violence. Um, and for a good portion of my career, I was, I was creating and running programs to help these kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in that frame of Wahlberg's development of a belief system, the belief systems that I've encountered just in sheer numbers um, are belief systems that are based on that negative side of the spectrum that you started with. These are kids that have, have developed beliefs that are, are um, that they're that they're bad in some way, that they're unworthy in some way, that they're broken, that they're they're not worth the attention of their parents or loved ones. Um, they're lonely, and that when it happens in the, the formative years for children, uh, creates not just a belief system. It is really a it's the biology of the brain that's being formed. Mm-hmm. In that in that moment in the, in the, or in that in that life early lifetime, and it's it's based on biology. Uh, we we have a drive to survive, and that drive to survive, a lot of times when we're in negative circumstances like situations of of abuse when you're not in control, uh, the brain forms around those those experiences and a lot of the behaviors that I worked with with young kids um, trauma victims um, 
you know, from the age of three through, you know, 18 in adults, um, it, the bi biology is the same when you encounter life-threatening experiences, you adapt. And one of the ways you adapt is your brain le learns um, from the very core parts of the brain in, in our amygdala, um, that's sort of the near the brain stem, it's the, the primitive brain. It's the part of the brain that reacts. It's the fight, flight, or freeze um, types of responses that we have that we share with you know, some of the most primitive um, you know, unevolved animals. Uh, okay. And is, significant. Is that, is that more of um, just the raw person who we are before we were, um, let's say, developed? I mean, it, like you said, it goes back to like our animal instinct, correct? Yeah, it is very much an animal instinct. And I would say it's, it's really not supposed to be who we are because we're born with brains that are wired for much more sophisticated relational interaction. Mm -hmm. um, it is, we revert to that brain when we're in dire threat. When, when there's some experience in the world that, that threatens our very existence and we go back to what's, what's the core programming is survive. All you got to do, everything else from this point forward depends on you surviving in the moment right now. And the brain will, will respond in kind and say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to dump all sorts of uh, chemicals, uh, stimulants in your body so that you can run away from something that's dangerous or they overwhelm that system. So you freeze. And in that freezing, maybe you'll go unnoticed. And by the way, those are two great adaptive strategies for a child who's being abused by somebody who can forcefully um, over overwhelm them in some way. So it's very adaptive, but the brain learns to use those strategies in, in times when it's not called for, times when there's minimal stress, but it triggers responses because that's what, what the brain is used to, to do. What's the difference between normal stress and a, um, a traumatizing stress? That's a good question. Um, and I think the answer is different for, for just about everyone. But I think the, the simplest answer is we, we, we thrive on manageable stress. We actually do some of our best learning when we're stressed, but not to the point of feeling that our existence is threatened. When we get to that point, that, that's a tipping point where there's nothing good is going to come from, from that type of stress. Um, we, we just have to get through it. I know some advice that you gave me when I was going through a rough time um, with the occupational issues that I was having was to just breathe. Do you think yeah. that if a person doesn't have the ability to just breathe, do you think that's that's a telltale sign that maybe it's 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 more than just a, uh, a normal stress and, and more of a traumatic stress? Um, I, I think it's definitely a symptom of of that stress. Um, mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> to 
to put it bluntly, if, if we all breathe, um, you know, if you go for more than three minutes without breathing, you are in deep trouble. Uh, your, your existence is pretty much threatened. <laughs> it's the type of breathing that we do uh, when I say just breathe, because we're in, when we're in that anxious state, when anxiety overtakes us, um, we go into a protective mode. And, and one of the ways we kind of ramp up our system is by hyperventilating. The more oxygen you get into your body, the more you mobilize your muscles and your, your energy. Mm -hmm. When you're doing that in times, when that becomes your, your way of, of being, uh, that gets in the way of, of life because we are not meant to, to live under that, that kind of constant stress. So the deep breathing exercises, mindfulness exercises, things like that that I would use with trauma victims is just the, the base techniques to get a person back in their body. Um, because when you're, when you're feeling threatened, that, that's, all that, that's all that matters in that, in that moment. Um, and getting folks back in their body, it's about being able to, uh, well, another symptom of that trauma is numbing. Getting, getting a, a child back into their body after trauma is getting them to be able to, to feel again, uh, not, not actually, actually feel their body. So when you're breathing, you know, we talk about, you know, breathe, breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth. When you're breathing in through your nose, feel the temperature of the air, feel, the, uh, feel what it feels like coming into your body. Feel how you're refreshed when that air comes in. And when you exhale, it deep, a deep exhale. Um, that that's a, has a, an associated feeling and it can be very restful. Unlike the... Like in a dog attack? This is of my dog in the background right now. <laughs> is, is that rat? <laughs> that is rat, yes. That is rat. And you mentioned... Will be, yeah, there's, there's Goldie now too. We got the singing <laughs> chorus. Doing their deep breathing. Yeah, there you go. David, you mentioned the word mindfulness. Um, a lot of times you hear that when it's associated more towards our, um, Buddhism, but what is it, what is a Catholic, uh, version of mindfulness? What does that look like? Um, well, you know, mindfulness is associated with meditation and Catholics are not foreign, you know, that's not a foreign concept to us. Mm -hmm. no. Um, mindfulness is really just a uh, it's allowing yourself to enter into a restful state of being mm -hmm. it starts with the deep breathing exercises or body awareness um it's a, it's a way of of getting your yourself into into the moment and experiencing fully all the sense experiences that are that are around you constantly that we ignore often mm -hmm. As we, we get caught in um, sort of our mindless pursuit of goals of, you know, tasks that we have to do and, and um, distractions of, of all sorts that, that just plague us. And when we talk about mindfulness, it really is, I think um, was, uh, Thomas Merton used, used to uh, use the, the term, um, what do you call it, um, centering, centering prayer. Mm -hmm. Similar in a lot of respects to identical in a lot of respects to to mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Is mindfulness is that the physical therapy 
the the equivalent of physical therapy to the mind as physical therapy would be to the body? Um, yes and no. I, I would say it's the warm-up exercises okay. <laughs> for, okay. for psychotherapy because you need to be in a, a frame of mind. Uh, well, certainly psychotherapy will, will uh, happen with where we start where the person is at. So if you're anxious, if you're depressed, we're starting there. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times to get past that to the core experiences where we're doing some mindfulness work to, to get, get people calm, calm, focused, thoughtful. And using, uh, you know, I mentioned our primitive brain we use when we're in trauma. Our prefrontal cortex, the, the evolved portions of our brain where logic and reason and understanding reside um, in order to access that you have to get through those primitives uh, primitive places in the brain so that mm -hmm. you get to a point where you can reason where you can start to understand your emotions understand where they come from how to control them now see if i understand this correctly um the amygdala is where all the um animal instincts are yeah, that's the, that's the primitive brain. We would share that with a crocodile or, or other, you know, that's our lizard brain. We call it okay. Something. And the prefrontal cortex is where the logic and, and our intelligence is, is those are, that is the last part of a child's brain to be formed, correct? Or, or to develop? Well, ac actually, we're born with pretty, uh, you know, a child's head in comparison to, to their body. It's, it's huge. It's absolutely huge. And that's because the child has a brain. Um, and it is, it is a very complex or, you know, organ, even in, in early childhood, it develops over time. Neural connections happen over time, but the, mm -hmm. the basic, you know, chemistry and, and biology and the stuff of, of the brain is there. Ready. So, so do these two parts of the, they obviously must complement each other, but can one, if there is trauma that's been caused in, um, you know, at some point, can the prefrontal cortex, can that reason with the, uh, the uh, amygdala to... Um, can it reason with the amygdala? I, I would say I am, I am not a neurologist. So, you know, you, you may have uh, listeners at some point that tear what I'm about to say to shreds. But I would say um, there are different parts of the brains and, and they have different functions. And it's sort of like saying, uh, um, you know, does the carburetor uh, communicate with the radiator? Well, you could say, you know, in a car, you know, you need it all or, or things just aren't going to work properly, but they certainly don't do the same thing and we wouldn't call it necessarily communication. Um, it, the tasks of each part of the brain um, are defined by the situation in which we, we use it. Mm -hmm. you, know, the, you know, the classic uh, illustration of you're on the Serengeti and there's a lion chasing you. Um, that's when your amygdala is going to say freeze or, or flee or, or fight, you know, do one of those things and it's just going to kick in and we're going to start flailing, doing the best we can. Um, you don't want your prefrontal cortex to, to be um, trying to reason out a situation when you're in immediate danger. 
it just takes too long and it's not the right organ to use. Mm -hmm. Okay. The reason I asked that, David, was because I wonder if there is the same way that, you know, when someone suffers an injury, there's paralysis, it, you know, they may have a limp or something, you know, mm -hmm. for the rest of their life. You know, with these traumas, are there ongoing mental paralysis? Um, if untreated or unattended to, I mean, um, you know, psychotherapy, the, there are therapies that work. I mean, oh, oh therapy. I started to talk about therapy. Um, yeah. Can, it be, can a trauma be undone with mm -hmm. therapy? Uh, yeah. And there's a number of different types of uh, well-established trauma therapies um, mm -hmm. that are used with vets who've experienced combat. Uh, with kids who have experienced trauma, uh, with people who have gone through uh, different types of you know accidents or you know things mm -hmm. like that, um, and the core is around integrating those experiences, and that does mean getting folks out of that that primitive brain and into their prefrontal cortex and, and being able to. Um, pull apart and understand the trauma and understand that they don't need to react mm -hmm. that fight flight way. You know, let me shift gears now. I'd like to go into like what, how, how these beliefs are formed when it comes to say faith, mm -hmm. you know, we have a lot of people and in, in the demographic for this, this podcast actually does lean towards parents and grandparents that are praying for, their children and their grandchildren to believe. I mean, there's, there's so many things out there today that, that are leaning towards people not believing. How can we create environments for belief? What needs to be right in the brain to, to create a yes to, to faith? Does that make any sense? It does. It's, and I think, I think that's a powerful question. Um, I think the the answer to that, I, I think, is, is le it's less about brain chemistry and more about relationship. Mm -hmm. um, I think the statistics would show that a family where mom and dad are people of faith and express their beliefs through the rites, rituals, and experiences of, you know, in, in this case, the Catholic Church, um, that the stronger their belief, the more likely that, that their children are going to adopt and internalize that belief system. And, you know, we, we talked a, a lot about, you know, brain chemistry, but, but the relational aspects of, of psychotherapy and of, you know, just a, a normal family life are one of the most powerful um, curative factors for, for trauma. Uh, a child who's alone in their trauma um, is more likely to suffer the most deep symptoms uh, more so than, than a child who experiences uh, an abuse at school and gets away from that environment, but then comes home to an environment where they're surrounded by loving, protective family members. That is a, a crucial protective factor. And as it protects in trauma, it also in a, in a healthy environment goes even further to nurture that kind of um, adoption of, 
of faith and of, you know, that's a common experience in a family of faith is that we believe together when we, we learn that. Uh, and we more than learn it, we experience it and we share it and it becomes part of our, our relational self. Sometimes those moments, and I'm, and I'm going back to Jim Wahlberg again, um, I found his, his story of redemption was very, very powerful for me. Um, there was that one moment when Mother Teresa was talking to him where he, where he, he said, I believe it. At, the, at that moment, he believed what she was saying. So I, I guess, what are the barriers, David? What are the, what are the things that are holding a person back? And, and I'm not singling out Mr. Wahlberg at all. I'm not. Um, I just, like I said, I, I found his, his story to be very, very powerful for me. Um, and I don't like to mix podcast episodes. I think they should all stand on their own. But again, I mean, you're, I just interviewed him, you know, just before you, um, what are the things, what, you know, when mother Teresa said, you're more than this, you're that the, the circumstances that got you here, you're more than your prison number. And then he said at that moment, I believed it. There, there had to be a paradigm shift. You know, how does that happen? Um, you must've seen it in, in therapy when, when somebody goes from, believing that they're worthless to believing that, you know, they may not believe that they're a child of God, but that, you know, they are a human and they have, you know, value. Yeah. Um, yes. Um, I have seen that in various ways, maybe not as dramatic as Wahlberg's experience that that single moment where you can say this person changed me, but um, certainly in, in working with and training therapists and, and running an institute, um, one of the things I've learned uh, in, in teaching therapy is that it is not about what you say. It's not about the words that you use. There was no magic in Mother Teresa's words, Walbert. There was something about the relationship that he had with her in that moment. And those are the transformative aspects of, of a therapy or a relation, any relationship uh, is when you believe in the other person and that connection with the other person enough that you will allow yourself to be transformed by them. Um, by what they're doing, by what they're saying, or just by their presence. And, you know, there are um, seminal moments in a therapy when uh, a patient will, will have an aha moment. And uh, that, that can be based on something, uh, you know, the therapist says, or sometimes it can just be the presence of a attentive therapist in, in the moment at the right time, just being there, being there with the person, not so much what you're saying, but that you're there. And, and that presence is not just physical. It's, uh, you know, we have uh, the ability from infancy, uh, we have, uh, the, the term we use is mirror neurons, 
um, that there's a connection between a loving mother and a child, a biological connection that it's almost like Wi-Fi for the brain. It's it's like they're they're connected. They they have the, they're working on the same connection, and that forms a very deep and satisfying loving relationship. And that's the foundation of a good, you know, healthy infant development and young child development. Well, that continues through, you know, that that happens through our relationships. Dave Imhoff, um, he's off off mic right now, but um, he brought up a good point through a message. Uh, Holy Spirit is uh, was was definitely working on that day with with um, Jim Wahlberg and and Mother Teresa. Now you got me taught. You got me thinking. Um, just with the with the topic of belief, because mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I I am not an expert on belief, and that that's surprised me when I started to think about my work. Mm -hmm. uh, definitely informed by belief, and it, it's driven by. Mm -hmm. belief, but um, when you ask the core question, what is belief? Where does it come? from? Well, you know, Dave, I think you and I both experienced one event. Um, I'm not going to say where it was or, or anything like that, but we, I had given a, a talk and later on experienced someone certainly in crisis mode and I couldn't do anything. I, I was, all I could do was listen. And you fortunately were there to be able to help this young man through this, this, this crisis that he was in. But I guess his beliefs changed after hearing a talk and it brought, it moved him to tears. I think amazing how when, when people will actually sit and contemplate their circumstances in the light of, in this instance, forgiveness, that somebody needed to be forgiven, mm -hmm. meaning themselves. I, I think a lot of our, our beliefs are formed about ourselves and when we can actually look at them and forgive ourselves for what we've done how we how we chose to survive all those years you know our beliefs can transcend our circumstances yeah i do re remember on the retreats that we've done together a lot of moments like what you're you're describing where where, where people that were on the retreats had aha moments mm -hmm. And, and I bring that back to um, the type, types of re, uh, retreats that we were doing were relationship-based uh, from beginning to end. It was about um, helping men, in our case, men, um, through, through an experience of Christ in, 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 in different ways. And yes, um, a Holy Spirit-driven process, but also a very human process um, around uh, sharing community together and in that community, sharing aspects of ourselves, sharing our stories. And that, that's a huge piece. If, if you look back at, you know, the, the, the foundations of Judaism and Christianity, it is all about relationship and storytelling. We would not have the Christian faith if the four gospel writers didn't bother to pay attention when the events were happening and have of mind to to codify it after the fact and say these were the most important things that that happened uh, that have caused me to believe that this carpenter from 
from Bethel, originally from Bethlehem, uh, died, rose again, and in that rising, delivered us from our from our sins. That doesn't make any sense at all. Not at all. I does a large percentage of the world believe it? Because there's something more to that. And it, it is, you know, it's, it's a foundation. We are a Christian community. We are a Catholic community. We share those beliefs. They're handed down to us. Um, they're based in truth and they resonate in truth with us. Um, but but that, that belief system has to have a vehicle. And that vehicle is other humans. Um, I, I, I don't know that it's, I, I, I'm sure there are people out there who picked up a Bible and, and develop faith, but I think it's more common that somebody hands somebody a Bible and says, I believe this, here it is, read it for yourself, and that's that transmission. Um, that's the sharing, sharing of self, um, that, that we're wired to receive. Yeah, in your experience, you don't, you probably have not seen a lot of people that have suffered trauma pick up a Bible, they've, they've probably gone the other way, and chose to believe the the bad stuff as opposed to latching on to truth mm -hmm. um, I can only imagine the how that suffering must feel you also mentioned loneliness in the beginning of the show you you mentioned mentioned mm -hmm. that loneliness is a huge factor and and how much um, community can make a difference it sounds like so Dave, how do we reach out to people and connect with them at an honest level, at a true level, at a genuine level? You know, what's what's the best way to connect with someone? I would say there's there's no substitute for love that transforms itself into caring. And we're, we're kind of afraid of the word word love. Um, you know, in, in my field. Uh, if, if I say, you know, the core, core relationship that, that's established is a loving relationship in a therapy, um, I, I would be, um, to use the, the Christian term, uh, I would be crucified in my field <laughs> for using that. But the reality is, is that the best therapists that, that I've worked with, that I've learned from and, and taught, are the ones that really enter into um, that moment of therapy or that, that, uh, that, um, that therapeutic relationship from a standpoint of I care about you and that care is expressed through, uh, through loving intervention. Sometimes that is brutal honesty that, you know, you are messing up your kids right now uh, by doing X, Y, and Z and you need to stop that behavior. If you're, you know, if you're an alcoholic, you need to stop drinking. Uh, if you are, um, physically violent. You need, you know, you need to honesty and love and and care. I care about you. I care about the kids. And here's a context that I'm gonna, I am gonna be brutally honest. But it comes from a loving place. That that is that's what transforms people. That that's how you communicate the Bible. You know, and it's 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 become a, a you know the trait Franciscan maxim is. Um, you know, be the, be the, now I forgot the maxim, but be, be the Bible. Certainly. Yeah, yeah, go out and preach the gospel if you must use words. Yeah, you know, to me, that is the most overused, yeah. most overused um, Franciscan uh, maxim. Uh, um, I think Francis was much more than that. 
you know? Yeah. I do. Um, but there are some things that are true when it comes to expressing our faith. That's one of them, is that it is not about my whipping out the Bible and reading scripture and verse to people that's going to convert their, their hearts. It's going to be the love and care that I express to them. It's going to be being able to share not just the gospel, but the gospel, for me, of David. What, what's my life about? What are the transformative moments that I've had? Mm -hmm. Dave, what, you know, to this talk about spirituality, I'd like, to, I'd like to ask you a little bit about prayer. And how can prayer affect the, a person's mindset, first of all? And can prayer be that thing that, that helps people from, mental, say, mental illness? Um, can, it, can it be that, that break in, the, in the, the bad chain? Yes. <laughs> okay, we've settled that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can. And it's, there's so many, you know, when you say prayer, you know, it begs the question, what kind of prayer are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it, it can be anything from uh, teaching, um, you know, meditative prayers like we talked about before that are, you know, not necessarily religious in nature, but have kind of a biological tone to them, centering, uh, centering itself. Uh, yeah, that's going to have, have one type of impact. Um, very different type would be when you know I have had experiences of of being prayed over by uh, a community uh, in a time of distress or 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 just in a time of transformation. You know, at at retreats, having a, you know a group of men lay hands on me and say, "We are with you, Dave, and we're praying for you." And I got to tell you, I I've never had an experience like that 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 doesn't pull tears from me because it's overwhelming when you experience just undiluted um, focus care and, and concern or, or just um, sometimes it's just a prayer of joy of that we are together and, and expressing some just expressing community in that moment and that, that's a deep experience and it's something that we all, whether we admit it or not, long for. We need it. That is, we are social creatures, and we need that experience of others. So that type of prayer has, has, a, has a transformative power. Remote prayer, when you know somebody's praying for you, when you know a group is, is, is praying for you, that can have a physical effect. That can, you know, I, I'll use an example, and I know you've heard this story before, but this goes back to um, uh, when we were uh, leading a, a retreat. Actually, I don't think you were on this particular one, but I was one of the leaders on a, on a retreat. And um, at the very beginning of our preparation time, um, I learned that a young therapist who was training with me uh, was diagnosed with, uh, with cancer. And it was... Uh, a type of cancer that I, I remember the day she shared it with us because I was, we were in a clinical team and our psychiatrist was with us. So she's a, a medical doctor and we acted. And I, I, I just, I knew something was wrong when, when 
she reacted to, to what our friend was telling us. And she pulled me aside and burst into tears after and said, uh, this particular ca cancer, uh, she has about four months to live. Um, that that it's, it, you don't come back from this. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I just happened to be starting that, the, a retreat preparation time and we we're meeting weekly. And I, I, at the beginning of that retreat, I, I said something that I really didn't believe at the time. Um, I wanted to, but I didn't. And I said, I believe in miracles. And I am going to, to say, uh, I'm praying for my friend Deb. And, you know, by the end of this retreat preparation, I, I, I want us to be praying and I, I want something to happen. And I believe that there's going to be a healing that happened. And this was, this was a transformative experience for me because it did. <laughs> mm -hmm. So Chase, um, it was the, um, it was actually the day, the last day we were together, um, Deb sent me a text that, that just said, um, hey, hey Dave, today I got, got three of the best letters in the world, N-E-D. So I texted back. I said, what does that mean? She goes, no evidence of disease. Wow. Um, now, God provided for me, not, not just that miracle, but there's another piece to it. Mm -hmm. um, it's the only time I served on, on that particular type of retreat with a medical doctor. Uh, he was an uh, emergency room physician. And at our next meeting, he stood up and said, I, I think you all need to know, um, I wasn't going to come on this retreat, but I did. And I think this is the reason I'm here, is because I have to testify that what we just experienced was a miracle. And I don't believe in miracles. Wow. So that, you know, that that's... Um, there are moments in our lives that are transformative that, that just are beyond, you know, even the relational stuff that I'm talking about. It's there, there is, there's the natural world and there's the supernatural world. So in prayer, prayer can take us way beyond anything that we can logically, reasonably, scientifically quantify. Would you recommend it as part of therapy? Would I recommend Prayer? Prayer, yes. Um, how do I say this? Um, far enough along in my career that I'll, that I'll just divulge that I have never engaged in therapy that prayer wasn't happening. Mm -hmm. So you as a therapist... Say, did I always let them know that prayer was happening? No. <laughs> gotcha. It was not always the case, but mm -hmm. um, I will not enter into... Um, a moment with another without asking for blessing on that, that experience that that person's going to have and that I'm going to have. No, I'm particularly um, later in my career after, after that experience of, of the miraculous that I had, I know there's, there's power. That's truly a wonderful story. You never told me that. Dave Imhoff is back um, behind the mic and he has, you know, Dave has actually known you longer than I have. So I was wondering if Dave's got anything he wants to talk to you about. There, I was wondering with that story, Dave, uh, there were a number of miracles there. Um, the, the most obvious one, obviously, was uh, Deb's healing. But 
uh, as you said, we went into it with, um, I don't, I don't think I believe, I didn't believe in miracles, but I said I did and prayed for one. And uh, of course the, um, the ER doc that was transformed as well. So God works, you know, in, in circumstances and, and whatever, he works all kinds of things. Um, uh, but a lot of miracles happened there. Just want to point that one out there, Dave. Well, Davis, I think we're going to start to wrap this uh, this episode up. Do you have any kind of takeaway that you want to give away, Dave, uh, about prayer, about um, beliefs? Yeah, I, I think to kind of to boil down, you know, I think that the core of uh, every everything I said, whether it was you know scientific or relational or or you know personal stories, comes down to. I think the the most important aspect of of belief of our faith of uh, of our our striving for holiness it all comes down to um, relationship. We are I think sometimes we like to think we're alone. You know, lone wolf is, has a great mystique, but it's it's absolute it is idiocy I've learned over my life that we are. We are not the lone wolf. We are the pack. We are the, the we are the community. We are the church. We are the more connection we have, the healthier we are, and the healthier we are, the more we want to invite others into that connection with us. So, and that that plays out as you know in in our faith, it plays out as as evangelization. In my professional life, it's played out in wanting to create institutes and, and see uh, the craft of therapy, especially faith-filled therapy, um, to see that promulgated and, and taught and shared. Um, and and that's, that's what, it, what it's about. We're not meant to be alone. We're meant to be a part of something. And certainly, you know, for me, the Catholic Church, the Catholic community, um, my work communities and, and uh, that is all formative experience for, for me. Dave, we would be remiss if we didn't mention that you were our, our former Franciscan brother. That your spirituality is very, very Franciscan. It's very community-oriented. Absolutely. Um, I think you made the right decision when you decided to, to get into therapy and, and, and you, left, you left the order. But uh, I think you've done a wonderful thing throughout the you know the years that you've been helping children. Um, but David Lawrence Holly, I I, um, I thank you for for joining us. I just want to give you a, a, a little Irish blessing. It goes, "May your troubles be less, your blessings be more, and nothing but happiness come through your door." And I also want to thank the uh, Oblate Sisters of the Sacred Heart of Jesus in Harvard, Ohio who are praying for this postulate, and um, we, we thank them very much. Uh, like Dave said, it means a lot when you know somebody's out there praying for you. So peace and all good things. God love you all. Bye.